This programme was produced at and first aired on NPR, Manawatu People's Radio, with support from New Zealand On Air. Kapai Irarangi Tomotu, NPR. Hi, I'm Greg Watson and welcome to this week's show of Property Matters where we talk all things property, what's happening here locally, sometimes nationally and if we get really adventurous, a little bit internationally as well as it all ties into this world of housing and the show of Property Matters where we look into news and the market and also give a few opinions along the way. The Real Estate Institute of New Zealand released last week The monthly property report for April, and it came out with some very interesting reading. What they do is they tend to look at the median house prices around the country in comparison to where they were a year ago. Wendy Alexander is the acting CEO of the Real Estate Institute of New Zealand. In her report, she says that the number of residential properties sold in April across New Zealand was the highest number of properties sold in in an April month for five years, with over 7,000 sold. So things are pretty busy there as well. There's certain regions that are really standing out. The west coast of the South Island had 46 properties sold, which is the strongest sales volumes for an April month in 15 years. In Canterbury, over 1,000 properties sold, which is the busiest April in 14 years. And Waikato, with 700 properties sold, the busiest April in five years. It's really interesting to see how things are going and where people are buying. We'll come back to our region in, in just a moment. One of the things I look at is the national median house price. And compared to one year ago, it's gone up 19% from $680 up to $810,000. So what I like to do is I like to split Auckland and the rest of New Zealand apart because they're really two different markets. In fact, Auckland's sales volume is about 50% of the whole country. So what happens in Auckland can be reported as being national trends rightly or wrongly. So in Auckland, the median house price in one year has gone up 21.6% to $1.125 million. The median house price in the remainder of New Zealand has gone up 33% to 690000 so big changes along the way there. In Manawatu, Wanganui, what happened with, with us? Well, there was an increase in median house prices of an incredible 46.8% from Three hundred ninety-five thousand in April twenty twenty to five hundred and eighty in April twenty twenty-one. So that's for the Manawatu, Wanganui district, and that's the tenth record median price in the row. Also, the Manawatu district, which is really the areas outside of the cities, and the Rangitike district also reached record median highs. Now, I looked at a map of New Zealand and the percentages where things are going up, and there's some extremely large ones. For example, in Northland, 49% in one year. Gisborne, over 72% increase in one year. And then I put my thinking cap on and thought, why are the statistics so unusual this time around? And then I realised what was happening a year ago, and that, of course, was COVID. In lockdown, many house sales stopped or slowed. And when you look at statistics, if the sample size is small, of course, the numbers can be a bit skewed. And I went on to look at some graphs, etc., which did show that uh, clearly as well. So it might be a better idea that in a month's time, if you're listening to this podcast or here on npr.nz, that you look at more what's happening there or even when we come out of COVID. 
But one thing that is undisputable is that nationally the prices of properties going up and the proportion of properties within certain price bands is changing. So, for example, a year ago that there, there were 30% of all house sales were under 500000 Now, this, this time, this April, 15%. So that's a massive change. So two, in the under 500,000, only half as many homes are selling. In the $1 million plus, um, that's gone up uh, considerably as well to 33%. So it just shows the effect that the Auckland market has and the property markets have moving upwards. What we've found here in the Manawatu is that demand is still really strong. And I've mentioned this on the show before, but... Uh, the government has made a number of changes to make it more difficult for investors to buy property and to make property less appealing for investors. So what's happened in the Manawatu? We were finding that we're getting about 8 to 10 groups of people making offers on houses uh, simultaneously. Now what's changed recently is that a lot of investors have left the market but there's still uh, three or four groups of people typically trying to buy a property. These are people that are buying them to live in them themselves, either upsizing or downsizing or something similar to that. So the thing to consider is that the demand is still so strong that the prices will keep going up in this region. So let's have a look at some of the some of these stats again. Again, you have to take them with a slight grain of salt, but uh, compared to last year, Horofenua District, house prices up 39.5, Manawatu 35.5, Palmas North City 12.6, Rangitike District is up 16.9%, Ruapehu 32.7, Tararua 70.2, strong demand over there, and 37.4 in the Wanganui District. So some big changes there. And this was mirrored in the article that was released in Stuff, in the Manawatu Standard, uh, just recently, which says house prices climb higher and higher across the Manawatu. So this 46.8% rise really does make for interesting headlines. The article says that agents have said for years there was a big shortage in properties for sale, meaning demand was well outstripping supply. The disparity between supply and demand was most obvious when those medium sales prices were compared against values. And what was interesting was the Real Estate Institute's Manawatu spokesperson, Andy Stewart, said the median rateable value of the Palmas North properties sold in April was between $385,000 and $280,000 lower than the median sale price. So it'll be interesting when the next round of rateable values comes out to see where those are. And he went on to say that the story is the same in Fielding, where the median rateable value is 415000 but the median sale price had a record high of 690000 The situation in Palmas North is particularly grim for first-home buyers. So only 1.85% of the 115 houses sold in April went for less than 400000 while only 5.55% were between Four hundred and five hundred thousand. So I'll just do a little bit of maths here, which gives me just over seven percent of houses sold for under half a million. That's incredible if you look back a, a little while. This, this is according to Andy Stewart. Meanwhile, he says only five residential sections were sold. Uh, with Stewart saying the shortage of sections was hampering people wanting to build new houses or subdivisions. The boom has also hit Foxton and Foxton Beach, and while there were a few properties sold there. 
uh, eight in Foxton, five in Foxton Beach. The median price in Foxton was five sixty eight five hundred and seven forty in Foxton Beach. So, uh, very really interesting there with the prices. Hard if you're trying to get into a first property, without doubt. Uh, but the equity is is building and will continue to build for some time. This leads to an article that was um, a release of information released by TradeMe, and this was released to stuff.co.nz. It says, this headline says, the government housing policy appears to be slowing rent increases, according to TradeMe. TradeMe's latest rental price index suggests that the rental market is starting to show signs of cooling. The median national weekly rent remained unchanged for the second consecutive month in April, uh, which is at $540 per week. So the gro- even uh, the growth had slowed since the new housing policy was announced. In April, we also saw demand for rentals drop 17% nationwide compared to March, with every region experiencing an annual drop in demand apart from Gisborne and the West Coast, according to Gavin Lloyd, the sales director of TradeMe. He says it will come as welcome news for tenants and could help to alleviate some pressure on the market. Since 2016, rents have increased 23%, according to TradeMe's data. And uh, that's something which is, is pretty considerable when you look at other things like the, uh, the cost of living and, and inflation and so forth. There's also a seasonal aspect to this, even though they're comparing year to year, I suppose. But there's generally a seasonal thing where it goes a little bit quieter during this time of year as people tend not to move as uh, winter is coming. Apart from uh, around uh, a number in about June or July, if they're finding that winter is too cold and they want to get into a warmer home, there can be a little bit of a factor there. So here's news. Uh, this headline from Stuff Business says, New Zealand's new 39% capital gains tax, it's pretty harsh. So opposition leader Judith Collins says, Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern has broken a promise by introducing a capital gains tax, in inverted commas, because they haven't actually called it that, after the Labor government announced a series of housing policy changes. So people making capital gains on some investment properties can now be taxed up to 39% on their profits, and that's actually a rate that tax experts say is high by international standards. The government has also introduced a 39% tax rate from this tax year for income over 180000 Just by way of reminder, profits from residential investment sales are taxable when a property is bought between March 2018 and March 2021 is sold within five years. And a property bought since March 27 of this year is sold within 10 years. So with medium gains of about $280,000 on every profitable investment property sale, this means a significant portion of the investors' gains are likely to have the 39% rate applied, even if they, if they are captured by the Brightline test. So Jeff Nightingale, who's a tax partner at PricewaterhouseCoopers, Cooper, Price said 39% was higher rate than would be applied to capital gains made in Australia or the United States. Um, and so he goes on to to have a bit of an, an anal, uh, analysis of that. So by international standards, that's quite high, and I guess that's what uh, Judith Collins was trying to get at to score some political points there. So we'll come back just after this break. We've got a bit of Kiwi music here on NPR. This is LAB with In The Air.
You're listening to Property Matters here on NPR, Manawatu's People Radio, People's Radio, Te Reo Irirangi o Nga Tangata o Manawatu. I'm Greg Watson, and that was LAB with the cruisy sounds of In the Air. We're talking property here on Property Matters, and I found this article on stuff.co.nz written by Miriam Bell that I thought I'd share with you. It's about deal breakers, the property flaws that could cost you a sale. So just talks about some of the things to do right and wrong when you're selling. So the article acknowledges that it's easy to sell a property in the type of hot market the country has seen in recent months. Buyers worried about missing out are less exacting in their criteria. But in the cooler market, that's not normally the case, and uh, failing to cast a critical eye over your property and identify the buyer deterrence could cost you a good price or even sale. So uh, I'm just going through the process uh, of getting a home ready for sale and yeah it's a matter of getting a bit of an outside opinion and they have interviewed a number of people here in this article and Harcourt's national auction manager Aaron Davis says that buyers are now less tolerant of marginal properties with problems as the market has moved in their favour and some vendors are having to adjust their expectations. We haven't seen that much in the one or two, but nevertheless, these are some good tips. So even if the property has problems that are minor and easily rectified, if they're not addressed, they can discourage potential buyers and lead to a property sitting on the market for too long, which is a deterrent in itself. So here's some headings for you. The first impressions count. The importance of street appeal cannot be overestimated. This, that means properties which have messy, overgrown frontages are at an immediate disadvantage. Ray White Mount Eden's Jared Cooksley says first impressions count, so if what a potential buyer sees out the front of a house doesn't grab them straight away, they often won't bother with the property. It's not just unmown lawns or dirty street-facing windows that come into the equation. Details like the state of the letterbox counts too, he says. The house is a big investment for people, so you want them to like what they see right away. To make sure the lawn is mowed but looks lush, clean any paths or driveways, tidy the garden, paint the letterbox and mow the berms outside your property. Concern for exterior appearances should apply to the whole outdoor area. Gardens should be present as t- be presented as tidy and well kept rather than an out of control jungle. Another heading they talk about is cosmetic concerns. They say that many buyers' deterrents relate to the presentation of a property. Any signs of dirtiness, like marks on the walls or smudged windows, messiness and clutter, and bad smells from cigarettes, dampness, or pets are hugely off putting for most buyers. Cooksley says buyers need to be able to imagine themselves happily living in the property, so anything that prevents them from doing so must be removed. Many of these flaws might not seem very important, but they influence buyer opinion, so sorting them can make a big difference. Many of these issues can be solved with extensive cleaning and by taking the time to declutter and tidy before listing. Ensuring any renovation or repair work is completed is also a good idea, Cooksley says. A property should not seem dark and dingy, so keep the curtains and blinds open. Lighter paint colours are good and make sure all the light bulbs work and put small light sources like LED lights into spaces like walk-in wardrobes. And listening to your agent and taking on board their advice pays off too. Property Real Estate co-founder Hannah Walker says vendors have to acknowledge problems and then be willing to do what needs to be done. One of her recent vendors had a house with different coloured rooms. Walker suggested they paint it more neutrally to get the top dollar, but they didn't want to. She says they got offers, but not at the price level they wanted. So they painted it, and they got a price that they wanted. And I've seen that many times over the years. Another heading on things that could put off buyers is the leaky homes hangover, they call it. So for New Zealanders, the spectre of the leaky homes disaster still haunts the market. That means any signs of dampness, including smells or water ingress, are a big turn-off for many buyers. 
Cooksley says issues are of deep concern to people and they will search properties thoroughly for it. Vendors should clean up any signs of damp and mould, running a dehumidifier helps, and open windows to let the air get through. But people are particularly wary of properties that have plaster cladding or anything that looks like plaster, he says. It's a huge question mark for many buyers, so vendors of such properties have to be organised. They should get a builder's report in advance and give it to potential buyers. Weather tightness issues in apartments are even a bigger issue, and city sales agent Scott Dunn says the buyer pool is limited and they can be tricky to sell. If the remediation process is at the point where the cost estimates have been projected, then we have a place to work from. But if it's near the beginning of the process, there is usually a gap between vendor expectations and buyer predictions, so these ones are especially hard to sell. They go on to talk about confronting major problems. So there are some problems which are much harder to deal with. Crooks says that if a property is located in an industrial area or on a flight path, there is not much that can be done. In that case, it might be addressing things such as double glazing to reduce noise pollution that could make a difference between your home and the property next door. Another big problem is unconsented work, as its presence immediately diminishes the potential buyer pool because it affects access to finance. Cooksley says it is a problem that can be worked through if a vendor addresses it early on. Find out whether the work is compliant and then get the consent sorted out. It's possible to do this, but it takes time. It doesn't have to be done before putting property on the market, but it should be done before settlement. You see, people will still buy in such situations, particularly if it's a smaller thing like a sleep out or a deck added 10 years ago, he says. But there are a lot of non-compliant, non-consented work where there have been notices to fix, and that's a whole different matter. With cross-lease properties, of course, it can be title problems, and they can stem from another property owner on the cross-lease. Walker says vendors need to look at their title and flat plan carefully before going to market. They should make sure everything is there that's recorded on the title, because if something is awry and it comes out and it goes to sale, it could be a disaster and impact on the sale. So that's something there, just a few tips around selling, and those tips are good no matter what the market is like. A story here from Wellington that I found quite interesting. Uh, there's an undeveloped Wellington section which has sat empty for 60 years and it recently sold for over a million dollars. So this is near Johnsonville on Fraser Avenue. And you follow the road back towards Broad Meadows. And about a minute uphill is an undeveloped, unmarked 652 square metre section, a patch of green amongst dense suburbia. So number 78 Fraser Ave, which is classic central Johnsonville, according to one real estate agent, was bought by Henry and Maud Stevenson in 1961. It was so long ago that the purchase was made in pounds rather than dollars. The land has sat unused ever since, sometimes overgrown with gorse, but not for much longer. The section's just sold for $1.03 million. That's an absolutely insane price, says Alec Parks, the listing agent from the professionals Blundell and Mark Realty, who managed the sale. I've had managers from most of the real estate companies in the area calling me and saying, what the heck, how did you manage that? So it's really interesting. The 2012, the rateable value of that land at 78 Fraser Avenue is 195000 The median price for a house in Wellington City, including the land it stands upon, was reaching $1.1 million. So possibly when they would have originally bought it, they might have bought it for a few thousand dollars, but there were 51 offers on the section and that's a record for any listing by that particular real estate company. The first-home buyers never stood a chance, Parks said. Most of the bids at the top end were all builder-developer-type people wanting to get hold of it and subdivide it. He confirmed that the section had been bought by a developer. 
So incredible that that's been land banked for 60 years and it's interesting to know why, uh, you know, maybe why it's land banked for 60 years. It's quite, quite incredible really that nothing has ever been done. Finally, an article from the Timaru Herald. Tenants and landlords want the property manager to pay back money. So unfortunately, property management industry is unregulated. You can get bad people potentially, but I won't judge. I'll just read out what this article says. It says that former tenants and clients of property manager Amanda Gray say they desperately want a resolution after she stopped returning their calls and emails regarding bond and rent payments. On Friday, Timaru homeowner Anu Aloyan, excuse the pronunciation, went public with her concerns about the way Gray, director and sole shareholder of South Canterbury Property Management Limited, had failed to lodge bonds or pass on rent payments. Aloyan and her tenants claim to have been left about $5,000 out of pocket. Since then, other former tenants and landlords have contacted staff to raise concerns about their dealings with Gray. Timaru woman Chloe Rogers, who helps her partially deaf pensioner father-in-law Jamie Pydama with his day-to-day affairs, said she'd been fighting for more than six months to have his $1,200 bond returned. The article goes on to talk about uh, a number of things that they've been done. There's a that have been done to people. A South Canterbury-based couple said they'd been originally left $17,000 out of pocket after hiring Gray to manage a rental property they owned on Gray Road, Timaru. The woman said that she and her husband, who are both retired, had reported the matter to police with the help of their lawyer had managed to get some of the money paid back. They said they hired Gray to manage their flat in December 2018 and received the first four months' rent into their account and it was not until they needed some money to cover renovations they discovered no further payments had been made. There was nothing there. They say that Gray wouldn't answer calls for about a year. Pretty much every time we rang her since the day the money didn't go through, she wouldn't answer. So it's interesting to see where that's going to go. Um, there was a student who's also a uh, Ying Wang who's taking Gray to Tenancy Tribunal uh, to hopefully get her bond repayment returned. So you'd have to wonder what's going on there, where's the money, and what's been content- what's been done there. We're just going to have to see where this story goes. So uh, it does illustrate again or remind us that the property management industry is unregulated. And what's really sad is that, and I'm not saying this is the case here at all, but if money is stolen or used for what it shouldn't be used for, that is a crime. And uh, what I hope one day in the near future, and the Labor government has said that they will do this, is that property management is regulated. So the people that are running it, again, no comment on this particular case, but people who are running property management are, are police vetted, there's safeguards in place for consumers, and even something like a fidelity fund would, would be nice in the property management industry, which is what all companies pay into and all landlords pay into, so that if there's a bad egg, that the individuals who are owed money are not left out of pocket. It can come out of that fund. You see, a reason that not many cases are taken against uh, what you might call rogue property managers and that sort of thing is that each individual person has not necessarily very far out of pocket. So they normally just... Uh, wave it away. So a property management company may have uh, half a million dollars of rent that they collect in a month and uh, and bonds and so forth and it's really something that needs to be safeguards. Your larger companies would be taking millions of dollars in rent, of course. Surely this should be regulated, but that's a conversation for another day. 
and I hope you've enjoyed the show here on NPR, Manawatu People's Radio. You can also find Property Matters where all good podcasts are found. It's been lovely having your company. I'm Greg Watson. You can find me on the internet here in Palmerston North and I look forward to catching up with you next week. Support this show and others like it by giving a donation. For more information, go to www.mpr.nz forward slash donate.